And what I love about this book is that if you want to think about mobility as sort of at a system level and, and like how efficient is the system, you know, you really sort of make that process much more easy to understand because it's 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 actually quite quite difficult to to sort of build a mental model for for something as big and, and omnipresent as, as a mobility system, especially because we don't think of our current system as a system really in a lot of, in a lot of respects. It, is, it isn't even a system, right? Because it's not set up in, in any kind of organized way. It's a, it's a consequence rather than a system, but yeah. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. My name is Kirsten Korosek. I'm transportation editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the communications director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association and director of special operations at Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show. But I will say that if you're looking to work or invest in this sector, our guest today is one of the two people whose writings you must read or you really aren't taking this seriously. Welcome, Olaf Sackers. You you mentioned uh, that the the when when a VC writes a book they're they're kind of doing it uh, for different reasons than when someone like myself maybe writes a book. Um, what was what were you hoping to accomplish with this book? Yeah, I don't know if the, I don't know if there are that many VCs that have written books, um, but I think what me me and Prescott is when I say we, you know, Red Blue, um, what what we're doing in terms of VC is, is very idea centric. Um, so, and I think that that's what, you know, why I think the three, uh, of you get on so well with, with us and, and kind of what's similar, um, is that you care about ground truth and, and so do we, and, and trying to understand what's happening in the world, um, and being able to describe that in words. So ideas are pretty much at the center of, of what we're doing. So we call ourselves, you know, an, an idea based, um, investment firm. Um, so ideas are, are kind of central to that. So when, when we write a book, there's a whole conversation that's happening around transportation technology and has been happening for a while. And, and you, you all have been very much at the, in the midst of it. What are the, what are the terms of conversation? What are the important points worth discussing? I think those questions are like, you know, what, what, like one of the goals of this is to kind of create some terminology and some ways of thinking uh, about where we are, um, you know, whether it's around autonomous technology and the ways in which it just hasn't kind of arrived yet or, you know, transportation infrastructure and how we're just kind of captive to the incumbent kind of car model and what does micromobility mean uh, in the midst of it. So trying to kind of frame those ideas. Part of it is a passion project. You know, I, you know, once you start writing, you can't really stop. You kind of have to get to the end. Um, so it's a lot of things... Uh, all in one. Um, but I think when your question specifically, when it VCs, right, I think, you know, thought leadership is the kind of cliche term of what, what you're trying to do. And, you know, I guess that means kind of coming up with novel and interesting uh, ideas that, that push the conversation forward and allow you to uh, assess things better. But with the, the assumption is as you begin to make investments in back companies, as a VC firm, should it all roads, you know, come back to this book? You know, is it really acting as almost like a investment thesis for the for the firm as well? Or does it live outside of that 
I think it obviously touches on that, you know, the the idea of trip marketplaces. I think even though it hasn't been articulated in that way, like people don't talk about Amazon as a trip marketplace for the most part. And when scooters were, were becoming big, it was just like scooters, right? But I think there is something that ties all these things together. Um, and and the idea of a trip marketplace, I think, really clarifies it a lot better. You know, you're all like everybody is making decisions every day about how to get around. And if you're not owning and driving a car, you're interacting in lots of different ways. I mean, even if you are, you're interacting in lots of different ways with these trip marketplaces. So um, definitely from an investment perspective, there are lots of things to invest in around trip marketplaces. The uh, things we plan to invest in aren't limited, though, uh, to trip marketplaces. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, it, it doesn't work in, in such a, a linear way that, like, this is our thesis. We look for things. You know, we kind of just have a, a lens on it and everything that fits into it is like a, ch- a check mark. Um, but I think there will be um, people in the industry who are navigating the changes that are happening um, that will reach out and we'll have a conversation uh, based on them reading this. Um, there'll be founders who are, are just getting into the space. And I've noticed that in my previous writing too, um, that a lot of founders, as they're initially getting into the space, um, started reading the newsletter that I did a few years ago. Um, I remember that. To, you know, I, I feel like for some reason, a lot of people remember the newsletter because it was like a good way to kind of make sense of the world. Um, so um, if you're getting into the space and somebody refers you to something and says, you should read this thing, it's going to explain to you all the things that really matter initially. And then you'll have a framework to build from um, and, and kind of absorb new information then you are kind of part of that initial that everybody's kind of initial uh, entry into uh, the space. And I think that's a good place to be um, whether you're investing or, or doing other things. So I want to back up a little bit um, because you just mentioned some of your previous writing, but you know, when we all met, when was that four or five years ago or something? I remember when I met Alex Roy, he was talking to somebody from Ford about whether he could crawl back, crawl into the back of a pickup truck and whether it could have a porta potty inside of it. That was, right. <laughs> and then it quickly evolved into a Ford F-150 truck, which could have side fuel tanks and you could drive across America one way and then back with the same fuel tank. Sorry. That was a complete side distract. Doesn't everyone have the before meeting Alex timestamp and after meeting Alex timestamp? <laughs> Was that walking around CES and then you the and I? The show. LA LA Auto, Auto Show. Show, right. In, in fact, that, that, if I recall correctly, had you already published your your big first big blog posts? No, because I remember you writing back to me when I published it. Like you sent me a whole note about. That was a very important. What was the name title of that blog post? Because that seems like a pro, like a prologue to this book. Exactly. Yeah, it's called. Understanding business model disruption in That's the mobility right. industry. That's yeah. So I remember talking about that and I saw some of those ideas reflected back in the intro yeah. of this. But um I didn't have that 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 first blog post in front of me. So what part of that that you wrote years ago have there been any, you know, premises of that that have changed as you've learned more that you realize like, oh, I was maybe not wrong, but looking at it 
maybe not the way I should have been or, uh, or, or that the world has just changed and it needed to be updated? What were some of the major ones, big differences between that first blog post and now years later, this book? Um, I'd say that blog post has aged surprisingly well. Um, the one thing that did, hasn't happened so much is, is aggregation um, in the industry. Uh, there's still attempts to do a little bit of aggregation uh, of ride-hailing apps. Um, and um, uh, obviously, Google Maps is a kind of aggregation platform. And Uber is inside of itself, which I write about here uh, in Mobility Disruption Framework, um, is doing some aggregating. But that's the thing that, that hasn't come true. I had some theory about Apple there. But I think most of it was about just kind of framing different ways in which business models uh, can play out. I think the big difference is, you know, that piece is quite short and quite specific to one area, which is, you know, business model shifts that are happening. Whereas this is, you know, a whole lot longer and broader um, and makes, I think, a few discrete uh, arguments, um, one of which is in part one uh, about uh, trip marketplaces and, and efficiency and, and externalities, um, which I'd been thinking about for a long time, but took a long time to articulate well and explain well. Um, <clears throat> and then I think part five is, is also quite important where um, I focus on regulation um, and, and how infrastructure has been allocated uh, in our society. Um, and I think that I, I'm hoping we'll get some traction with regulators because you know, a lot of what I'm focused on in day to day, and I think what you uh, think about and, and write about in your know, various capacities is what what founders and startups and technologists are doing. But a lot of the playing field for where this is all playing out um, is set up by regulators, um, and you know, there, there's all these kind of messed up things about how the world is is structured, um, and actually creates a pretty unfair playing field. Um, and there's, I think, a lot of potential for correction there in order to, you know, fix a lot of things that are broken, but we, we're so used to them being broken that we don't even see that they're broken anymore. Yeah. One of the things I really like, I mean, you know, as you say, ha having just a, a place where you can anchor sort of all of the different pieces of what's happening in, in the world that we all pay attention to, um, to one place, there really just isn't, um, something like that. And, and I think what it might illustrate to people, one of the things um, that I think is often really underappreciated is that like, quote unquote, mobility, like it's mobility is like a really broad, um, generic kind of term, but it's actually even broader in terms of when, when you really dig into it, what you're talking about is, is even broader than, than what most people start out thinking about when they think about mobility. Right. And, and it, it, it comes to, I mean, everything from, you know, development to just sort of economic, you know, patterns and, 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 and consumer psychology and all it like, just, it, it's like this infinitely fractal almost thing where you can just go deeper and deeper and deeper. And what's really cool about this is that it, it connects a lot of that into one place, but it is also in, in some ways a, a jumping off point that allows people to kind of, you know, go out even deeper in the area that, that, they they're interested in without sort of losing touch with that, with that broader framework. And like that strikes me as being something that's going to be really, really helpful. 
And like, I guess the question, I mean, yeah, I, I, to, to make that a question, um, like, how did you know where to stop? Because that's also something I struggled with writing a book. Like, how, how do you how do you know where to say, like, okay, we've gone too deep into that. We need to, you know, keep this more more contained. Um, yeah. So, so the first part of, I guess, the statement part of your question, <laughs> I don't want to stroke Alex's ego too much. I mean, there's obviously a danger. <laughs> but, but I think one of his responses when I wrote that, that first piece about business models was, I don't know what the word mobility means, but like, <laughs> this is a good assessment of it or something like that. But he, I think Alex for years has been saying like, writing diatribes screeds against the term mobility. Like this is a garbage term. It makes no sense, et cetera. So I, I think part of what I was trying to do is like, you know, when, when, you know, when I was at Maneev, we call, we were called Maneev mobility, right? Like this uh, mobility focused entity, like what were we doing? So I think part of the goal there is to explain what mobility is. Um, Cause I don't think it's, clear from the outside where it begins and where it ends and, and what's going on. And, and that's why the trip marketplace idea, I think, is is so important, because I think it does give a framing uh, to that. And I think it also answers the question part of your question statement, which is where to where to end. Um, basically, the structure of the book, um, in, in part one, I kind of outline these three sides to the marketplace, the, the demand side where customers are making decisions about trips, the supply side where companies are offering all sorts of different solutions and innovating on technology. And then the externalities, what regulators can do. And that's basically the structure of chapters three, four, and five. Um, and, and, and part, part two is about technology and, and making fun of consultants. Um, so, hey, yes. um, <laughs> so, so I, I guess, I guess that, that, that was the structure and, and the chapters I needed to cover, but yeah, it's, it's very hard to be, concise and specific and cover the things that matter um and and also be complete um and say enough um it's it's really 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 hard to write a book um and you kind of have to do it i mean i think ed really understands i wrote a book i'm the only one here who hasn't written a book so i'm i'm the i'm the outlier on this one uh I, I think it's worth noting to the, the audience, we're going to be able to share this once this airs, correct? Yeah. I mean, you can basically go to yellow.cab uh, on the interweb. Okay. Uh, you just type that into a browser and it will pop so up. So one thing I want to highlight, just because we've been talking a lot about the details of it, but we're, you're calling this the Mobility Disruption Framework or MDF. And it's this really interesting platform that you've built this website for and you were able to, and we were talking about that earlier, but the other part that I want to kind of just dig into just a tiny bit is this other page that you linked out to and shared with us, which is dogs versus cats. Um, first of all, were you inspired by the Atonicast <sighs> and, the, and our nickname, the Atonicats to have cats as a central vision or a central feet, uh, central, uh, symbol. But um, I want you to explain. I, I will neither neither confirm nor deny. Okay. Uh, so the cat is throughout this, but I think it's worth um, giving you a chance to explain sort of why you're using this dog versus cat scenario to explain sort of two different ways that um, vehicles can be used or I guess categorized. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. Well, well, first I want to know which is your favorite dog or cat. Oh, I well, Ernesto is the coolest one. 
And also, but sadly, because I don't have a lot of transit located near me, it's more of like an aspirational cat. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then I know which one Alex is probably best suited for, which is, I think for the dog, I think it's the Tika, right? (laughs) So hold on, let's give, let's give people a a frame of reference for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So that's why I asked... That's why I asked uh, Olaf to explain the dogs yeah. versus cats. Olaf, well, you explain it, and then we'll we'll discuss what our favorites are. Okay, so basically, there are two ways in which you can get around. The first is that you can own a vehicle, um, like a car. It could be a bicycle, but most people, uh, especially in America, own cars. Um, and if you own a car, it's kind of dedicated to your use. It sits around waiting for you, ninety six percent of the time. Um, you can kind of leave yourself, your stuff inside of it. It's familiar, uh, convenient. Um, you pay for it up front. All the costs are kind of loaded into the the price, but then you kind of pay for all sorts of other things, uh, over time. Um, so that's, that's this one model, the kind of incumbent model of, uh, how people get around is they, they own a dedicated, um, good that, that helps them, uh, uh, get to where they need to go. And then I've mentioned a few times already now in this conversation, this idea of trip marketplaces, but that's the other, other option. And it ranges all the way from, you know, um, calling a ride hail vehicle, like an Uber or Lyft or a taxi, uh, to getting on a scooter. Um, but they also in, include in trip marketplaces a little less intuitively, uh, an Amazon package order or a food delivery order, because when you order something through Amazon, what you're doing is replacing a trip to Walmart um, or to Best Buy or, or someplace else that you need to drive in a car to get to. So you'd be making a trip uh, in a car and you're replacing that with some kind of delivery, uh, food delivery, um, et cetera. Um, and there's, there's obviously a, a very long tail. I've got these uh, four characters that I, I create in the book to describe a lot of the different kinds of trips one can um, have and, and the kinds of categories of trips, uh, medical trips. So each character represents one category of trip. There's one character called Espen who's uh, on dialysis and, and, and takes trips uh, to the doctor and, and another one who's working. So work trips or social trips um, or educational trips. So there's these two kind of paradigms. The one is this ownership paradigm um, and the other is the trip economy paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, we should say, though, that the ownership paradigm or dedicated or owned goods is the dog and yeah, yeah. common asset trips, which is the trip marketplaces that you were talking about, are the cats. So that's where the dogs and cats come in. If you're wondering how the heck the animal part comes in here, they, they are meant to be acronyms um, to explain these different um, sort of categories. Yeah, and they're also like personalities. Like, what do people love about dogs? That they're dedicated to you and they're, you know, reliable. They don't like, you know, run off and and do other things. Um, Whereas cats, the the line that I have in the book is dogs have owners, cats have staff, or as Americans would say, staff. (laughs) Um, So, um, you know, people kind of service cats and they do whatever they want. But, you know, this, this is the idea of, um, these trip marketplaces is they're much more nimble and flexible and efficient, um, but they're also not not as convenient. And and I, I like it also. I, I like this framing because I don't think there's like a a moral position that like one is better than the other. Some people like dogs and some people like cats. 
Um, and there's things to like about both of them. And there's things obviously to dislike about uh, both of them. Um, if I if I have an angle, it's that you know the the world is set up very much in favor of dogs, um, and and the cats are kind of fighting against <clears throat> uh, what what regulators have put in place, which is a huge skew in favor of ownership, which I think has created massive distortions in society. Um, but you know most people don't want to have a shared toothbrush um, or shared bed, right? Like you you want some goods or assets to be dedicated to our use. Um, and so, and so it, it does make sense to have ownership in many cases. I think where we are though with the transportation uh, economy that we're kind of wrapped uh, up in, um, the the ownership model is just so distorted and has created these systemic problems like massive, massive congestion or pollution, um, or, or the way urban spaces allocate in ways that I think aren't so constructive. Um, that I try to highlight through the book. So this brings up um, a, an issue that I think is is one that I thought a lot about reading reading this book because I mean I think you know as as you say right like like there are reasons to like dogs and cats right there's reasons to like are there a car versus oh yeah I think there I think there are reasons for, for or arguments in favor of both but um I mean I think you you know that having been said the case uh, the 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 book makes a really I think strong case for why you know, cats are better in a lot of, in a lot of respects or, or not better, but like more efficient at a systems level. Right. And I think that's always been kind of the appeal of, of sort of mobility revolution is that, is that vehicles are sort of intrinsically inefficient in a lot of different ways, right. Both in the lo- low utilization, as well as, you know, using internal combustion engines and, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, uh, and it's, it's inefficient use of space in a lot of ways. Um, you know, so, so, but I think, you know, and, and, and what I love about this book is that if you, if you want to think about mobility as sort of at a system level and, and like how efficient is the system, you know, you really sort of make that process much more easy to understand because it's, it's, it's actually quite, quite difficult to, to sort of build a mental model for, for something as big and, and omnipresent as, as, mobility system, especially because we don't think of our current system as a system really in a lot of, in a lot of respects. So I guess my question though is. It it isn't even a system, right? Because it's not set up in in any kind of organized way. It's a, it's a consequence rather than a system, but yeah. Yeah. But there's emergent systems like, like systems are. That's a great tweet. It's a consequence rather than a system. (laughs) That's the tweet. Okay. But, but, but that's okay. So we're in semantics, but, but the point I want to, or the question I want to ask you is sort of, you know, because I, I, I think you, you make a really, really strong intellectual case for why, you know, certain things, why, why our system can be better, right? Like how we can sort of put all these pieces together to make a system that works more efficiently. But, you know, to even buy into that, it, there's sort of a presupposition of, you know, people caring about sort of the collective uh, uh, efficiency or, or usefulness of a system versus only caring about their own experience within that system. And like, and then also factors like just, I mean, it's like personality and then even just like habit, like so much of what people do every day, like we, we couldn't possybly intellectualize everything we do, like what well, maybe we could, but we certainly don't. And so we do a lot of things just kind of by habit or out of force of habit. And so I guess, you know, and I think that's, you know, we've seen a lot of talk about a lot of the things that you're talking about here um, that haven't come to be in, you know, quite as quickly as, as people maybe thought or argued they should because of these advantages. And so my question is sort of like, how do you think about that, 
those those sort of human individual human factors um and and how they relate to sort of this broader vision for like how how we can have a better system so i, I think um so one of the I was sent an article uh, by a friend from the New York Times about closing off streets during COVID and was like, wow, look, look what's happening, that these changes that happen. And my response to it was like, it's a few streets in a few cities and it doesn't actually change the equation. And I think part of what I was interested in, in highlighting here is just how systemic um, the, the bias in favor of cars is. I, I said actually like, you know, I'm I, I'm kind of neutral on dogs and cats, but the the whole first introduction to the book is about the systemic inefficiencies of the automotive system. Um, so I, I I do think you're talking about individuals and and how they assess this. The the idea of the cats and dogs is that they're like playing cards, right? And individuals have a hand of cards and they get to play them in some ways. Um, and and this idea of of a game I think is quite relatable because we're all in the midst of these marketplaces, whether it's dating marketplaces or trip marketplaces or e-commerce marketplaces, they've kind of just become a part of our world. Um, and, and we interact with them. Um, and we're in the midst of this kind of interaction, but how do we think about it? How do we, you know, as individuals decide to act? Um, and we're playing this game with these playing cards, but the whole board, uh, is skewed, um, in one direction, uh, given the current subsidies, uh, and spending in part five, we go into a lot of detail about like high ninety percent uh, uh, of of federal and state um, spending is is just dedicated towards building out and repairing additional car infrastructure, et cetera. Um, so I think part of this is about um, creating a lexicon or, or framework um, in which <clears throat> it's uh, kind of clearer what the problems are and what the challenges are to kind of put a uh, a pin in it um, and make it, I think, clearer for, for people who would like to see, uh, you know, changes and, and you know, what, what are the advantages of transit and what are the challenges? Why is micromobility interesting and exciting? Um, you know, what can it do that cars can't do? Um, I try to put a lot of uh, lens on that. I, I think I'm relatively optimistic about how much people care about these issues. I think you're right. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot that, you know, people look at and kind of shrug their shoulders at. Um, but there's also like groups, this is, I don't know if you follow this, this is a Facebook group called Numtots. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> it's like new, new urbanist memes for transit oriented teens. Is that it? Yeah. It is, these are young people who basically like are focused on how, you know, messed up urban spaces and, and how much better it could be because, you know, like the, the, the skew in favor of, of, of cars and car ownership. And I use the, um, the counterpoint, which I think is quite helpful uh, in the book of, of Japan. Like you go to a city like Tokyo, the biggest city in the world, um, and you walk around and it doesn't feel, it, it feels quite inviting um, and quite, um, you've got these small roads and these um, kind of uh, a lot of, uh, stores and 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 uh, living space kind of tied together because there is no car parking on the street like none there are no roads with on-street parking basically anywhere in japan um, and that's why cars in japan are way 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 smaller because there isn't this expectation that you have uh, a place where you can just drop your car off everywhere you go so there's way less kind of urban space that's just given over to cars You've got way higher usage of, of transit because also transit works much better when 
you know, 50% of urban space isn't dedicated to cars. So you have to travel twice as far to get anywhere. Um, so I, I think Japan's a really interesting counterpoint. And, and, and again, it's, it's not like there is um, only way, one way to do things. America has a lot of space and there's great things about the flexibility and convenience of car ownership. And, you know, the, the, there's lots of great things there, but um, the, uh, the kind of giving up of urban space and the decisions that we've made um, are skewed and it's it's kind of, it's interesting in the American context because there's a lot of focus on capitalism but the the system in favor of car ownership is really kind of like a socialist subsidy uh, subsidizing um, you know uh, parking and road construction um, and you know everybody's paying taxes but those taxes are only benefiting people who own cars is it is it possible I guess is my question to to go from where we are to to something that is more fundamentally different. It seems like there's a whole like, like chicken and egg problems inside of chicken and egg problems with a lot of this stuff. And, and I think, you know, a lot of like, people who have been really excited about this stuff, I think there's, there is some frustration that it's, it's taken longer and that the car for all the arguments against it, um, you know, there are advantages. Like, I mean, having one device to take care of everything, right. It's like the, it's like a smartphone, right. You have one device that you can do all of these things that you used to have all these other devices for, and there's just the cognitive load aspect alone. Um, and again, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here, obviously, but I guess, I guess my question is as a, you know, as someone who's out investing in companies, you know, on this thesis of, of that, this vision has some really meaningful advantages. Do you see a path from where we are to, to something better? And, and if so, what is, you know, what does that look like? Definitely, definitely. Yes. Um, for a few reasons. The one is, I think the trip economy has been, extremely successful in spite of the fact that cars have massive subsidies uh, in favor of them um, and massive biases uh, in favor of them. And yet, nevertheless, uh, the trip economy has has flourished and grown uh, quite successfully, even as like the, the reality of, of car subsidization, um, which is, you know, car, like parking minimums, for instance, like every piece of construction in the United States requires parking space to be built into the cost of the, like it's just crazy like how 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 strongly the system favors car ownership and yet well, I, if i may um, answer for one second Olaf, I, you know having just moved to miami what really shocks me and that that shocks me the requirement for parking spaces is the brand new buildings that are designed to last 7500 years have yeah. no consideration for other modes even for delivery and drop, ingress, egress to the buildings. And I could under, I could almost live with the requirements for parking because, you know, you have legacy cities with legacy thinking, but the failure to add, to allow for new thinking as a supplement to legacy thinking is to me just crippling, crippling to these cities. Well, look at, look at the master plan of, of most cities and how they, you know, they'll put, even in, in where I live, they'll have a 40, 45 year master plan that the updating of it doesn't, it's like in, it's paralyzed or city officials are paralyzed from making decisions about how modes of transportation have changed. Like perhaps the road expansion should consider that more people are riding bikes and scooters now, or that there is even a business model for that. Um, remember a few years ago, we had uh, one of the co-CEOs from Gensler, which is the design firm in which they're, they're large, and he was a true believer, right? But, but one of the things that they, they said is that 
in the design for these very large city structures um, that they're advising the companies that they're building for to not have interior uh, ramps in parking garages because the expectation is that those parking garages will be modified and used for office space or something else because there won't be a need for parked cars. But I think that they're unusual um, in their planning and that, that we don't really see a lot of that happening at the middle America or mid-tier town or even the mega metropolises because they don't need to, especially in the United States because there's space. Uh, I think it's because the, there's space, but also because the the paradigm um, is so much the default. Um, and I think these things change slowly until they change quickly. Um, you know, I think if people see a different reality and prefer that reality, then they do switch across to it. And you noted like the convenience of, of car ownership because it's one device that does everything for you. Um, but I think, you know, part three of, of my book is, is talking about um, how to bundle different kinds of trips into one convenient experience because you do have to compete with the convenience of car ownership. And the smartphone really does that um, and ties together um, all these kinds of trips. And then within apps, um, you have them kind of tied together um, more and more. You can do all sorts of things within uh, Uber. Um, and I think all the kind of habits and uh, thing, uh, conveniences of car ownership you know, have built up over time and, and the world has been built around them. <clears throat> but food delivery or uh, package delivery in, in particular, everybody uses Amazon, is also becoming uh, a convenience that more and, more, more, and more people uh, are using. I think on the regulatory side, the question is just how to highlight the fact that, Alex, you noted in, uh, in Miami, um, there's, no, uh, there's no consideration for other modes. Um, my experience of being in Miami on South Beach was it wasn't even possible to to be a pedestrian. Like pedestrianism is is not an option. It's not a choice that's open to you. Well, in uh, South Beach, in South Beach, it it is on a very limited basis, but not in a, not yeah, in the even, New York even, sense. <laughs> even there, like we were just trying to cross the street from a hotel. Uh, and get to you know a strip mall across the street, and and there wasn't there wasn't a way to get out of the hotel other than through the car ramp, right? Like that that was that was how much the hotel had been built around um, the car without um, much much option. And and I, I think what I'm arguing for, especially on the infrastructure policy side, because because the, the the trip marketplace is you know going to expand wherever it has space to, um, but. Um, on the policy side, to create more options and to basically equalize and build out sufficient network uh, for these different modes. So, for instance, in Seattle, only 3% of people commute by bicycle, um, whereas in Copenhagen, 49% of people uh, do. And I think that's really just a matter of having a sufficient network. Like Seattle really, really sucks at building out bike lanes, even though they want to. They like building one mile per year or just a few miles per year. <clears throat> and, um, and Copenhagen has hundreds of miles of protected bike lanes. And so when you have that choice as a, um, as a commuter and you're like, well, I can drive a car and get stuck in, in congestion. This is before even, you know, policy to try and bias people one way or the other. 
um, or I can get some exercise um, and 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 get there faster. It seems like you know a lot of commuters in in Copenhagen, at least with the climate that's similar to Seattle, will make that choice. Um, whereas in Seattle, I think you just don't have that choice. O- almost any American city, it's just not safe to to cycle. Um, it's not safe or comfortable or easy to walk, and so you you're forced to to drive. Um, and and I think driving is is sometimes the best way to get places, especially if they're far. Um, but choice is a wonderful thing, and we should have more of it. Don't you also see it, at least in the U.S., that that car that that how we view independence is almost entirely through vehicles? So a car provides independence, whereas in other com- countries, um, access to various forms of mobility is viewed as independence. So, you know, there, and that's steeped like in our culture and our, in our movies and in our music, a car is, you know, a keys to the adventure and, um, and independence. Whereas, and that kind of like locks us into that idea that that is the only way to really move around freely. And so everything is built up around that. I mean, and I'm not talking about like this is a recent phenomenon. It's like decades of, no. of the uh, suburbs, right? Yeah. Like the, the the story of America and the story of of retail, for instance, like Walmart is is built around cars uh, and and malls and 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 culture and movies for sure. Um, and and I don't think you know America's. Uh, a great country, and, and I think there's many great things uh, about that. I, I think we have walked into a wall um, in the sense that congestion, <clears throat> because you know the car ads are always you know I'm Alex Roy driving through the mountains in in a Porsche, right? Um, <laughs> and, and there's an open road no, in this case, or or maybe a, a Tesla. Uh, but the reality is most people spend most of their time in a car behind somebody else's car getting frustrated and annoyed because they're stuck in congestion because car infrastructure really, really, really sucks at throughput. Like you just have very low throughput. So you set, you set aside like half your urban space or a third of your urban space towards these spaces for cars to move through. And yet they really, really suck at allowing people to move through them. And so if you've got any kind of density then you have massive congestion. So it's true. There's, there's this romant- romanticization <clears throat> um, of cars in American culture. Um, and I think some of it's justified. There, there is a, a lot of good stuff about what cars can do and, and, and gives you freedom and convenience. And if you have kids, you almost certainly need a car to move them and all the stuff that they need with them. Um, but there's also um, a trade-off or a limitation uh, to how well, you know, people that, can get around. That's the issue is that to, um, if you were to change that, then you also have to consider that it takes many years to build up the infrastructure, like let's say protected bike lanes that actually would be enough within a city. Let's take Seattle, for example, since you mentioned it earlier, um, to build out enough bike lanes to have an appreciable sort of change in how people move and to actually see this as an option takes a long time to also add in sort of transit and to change how parking regulations are and to change like all of these steps that need to happen. It's 
there's so many hurdles or our speed bumps, I guess, if you want to continue at this, mm-hmm. you know, transportation technology, um, that it's been the default, I think, for political officials who um, in local politics are oftentimes in limited terms and might not have a background in transportation to just continue to approve the status quo until it becomes, you know, the congestion is so terrible that then they're forced to do something. But again, they almost always are small pilot programs or nothing that will ever really show, prove out to be successful because they're just not broad enough or, you know, done correctly. And so then again, we go back to the car. I mean, it's it's a, a really kind of terrible loop that it keeps occurring. But but I don't see I don't see it as a loop. I, I see us as having hit a wall, right? Like you're just describing the wall, right? We're we're at the point where there is no more space in cities. You can't build your way out. You in the past you've been able to add an extra lane and add an extra lane. But if you add an extra lane on half of your roads, you're only adding, you know, a tiny bit of capacity if you already have five lanes in place, right? Like you can only build out so much more capacity. Yeah, that's what Elon like- Musk's tunnels are for. <laughs> so wait, hold on. Since <laughs> since we've mentioned Tesla, I have to down. <laughs> isn't isn't the fact right? So like, if you took a hundred people in in any city in America, and you asked a hundred random people on the street, what like name one company that is disrupting mobility today? Ninety. Eight percent of them, ninety-five percent of them, something like that, would say Tesla. And to me, like I think this is what I love about this about this MDF. I've been, you know, I made the point in the book that, like, compared to all of the the possibilities, which of course I didn't have room to sketch out in the book uh, because it took an entire book that you were much better at writing it than I would have been. Um, you know, all of these these opportunities to really fundamentally you know, really change our entire relationship with mobility. They're all there. Like all the pieces are, are, are either there or could be there um, pretty, pretty simply, but you know, the way people, people are so like our, our entire, um, you know, relationship is so mediated by cars that what we think of when we think of mobility disruption is a car with, you know, an electric motor. And that kind of seems more like, like smartphone inspired car, Right, um, a car with a, a touchscreen infotainment that that reminds us more and has over-the-air updates and stuff like that's, you know, and and to me it kind of the the popularity of Tesla suggests that we are really stuck not just in terms of our physical development but intellectually like as a as a society we really struggle to um, imagine things that are not mediated by this form of the car that has that you know still dominates our perspective. So I mean, when you have a it's one thing to have physical limitation when you have limitations of imagination, you know, that among the public that ultimately you need to win over to be consumers of these, of these next generation sort of actually disruptive companies. Uh, how, how, how do you think about that, that challenge? Well, I mean, this is why I created dogs and cats, right? I think to, to be able to say, you know, Tesla is, is a dog company. They're, they're manufacturing really, really sleek, handsome, elegant dogs. Yeah. Um, and so if you want to, um, if you want to look at them, you know, you kind of have to understand that that's what they're doing and, and they're, they're making better dogs, which is, I think a good thing. You know, you, you want to move towards electrification for a bunch of reasons, pollution being a big part of it. 
But I don't think it, it gets around the real problems of inefficiency of the current model, which are that, you know, car ownership is super, super inefficient. And we've, we've created all these problems uh, for ourselves that we're bumping up against. And maybe it's more comfortable to put on autopilot and sit in congestion that way. Uh, but you're still spending a lot of time in congestion, uh, not doing very much, and you're sinking a lot of money into an asset <clears throat> and a lot of weight into the batteries of that asset uh, so that you can kind of own it and have the conveniences uh, of it. Whereas when you've got fleets, if you want to shift towards electrification, you know the trip economy is the best way to do that because fleets of shared assets have much higher utilization. Electric um, mobility has much better returns on investment with high utilization assets. It's it's cheaper on a marginal basis to run the asset. And so the upfront cost is spread across lots of utilization. So trip operators want to be electric vehicle operators as well because it's just better economics. It's just cheaper for them. And it's cheaper for consumers who want to use that um, as well. So I, I think there's a lot of ways in which um, <clears throat> the trip economy creates these kinds of, uh, kinds of efficiencies and, and solves these kinds of problems. Um, I think my goal is is just to highlight and give a framework and 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 tools to better see these things. Because I, I think you'll, a lot of this line of questioning, you know, that, that we've been discussing for the last few minutes, has been like, we live in a messed up world. You know, it's not going to change because it hasn't changed. Um, you know, it's really bad. We're sad about it. But you know, I, I think it, it, it like unless we have terminology to you know, point out, you know, how weird it is that if you walk along a street in a city, like there's just cars lined up everywhere, taking up all the space and then a tiny little sliver of land for pedestrians to walk along. Um, or even ride hailing vehicles don't have space to stop because these cars are parked all over and then the cars behind them get really upset, but you know, there's no space for them. And for delivery vehicles, there's no space for them to stop either. So I, I, the whole urban environment's been designed in, in one way without these kinds of considerations in mind. But if we have, I think, better tools, I, I think language is where it starts. If you've got tools to explain why things are broken and how things could be different. And the, the cats and dogs are kind of an imaginative exercise. And you use the term imagination. You're like, <clears throat> people can't imagine a different world. Well, the goal here is to give the tools to imagine a different wor- world and the language to imagine a different world because trips are life. They're, you know, what we do to get around and, and they're at the center of, you know, how, how our worlds are constructed. So, um, you know, if we don't have tools to talk about them effectively um, and to point out the problems in the way the current system is set up, uh, then it's very hard to make it better. But I think once we do have this language and terminology, we can start organizing and 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 be much more effective. Um, and honestly, I've I've seen this change happen uh, increasingly over the last few years. I think micromobility. <clears throat> on the one hand, people talk about how unsafe scooters are, but the reason scooters are unsafe, and I think more and more people have have started voicing this perspective, is because there's so many SUVs driving around roads. Um, and there are not enough bike lanes, you know, protecting uh, vulnerable road users. And so that that perspective, as there are more and more people that are interested in in being on scooters, will have an experience of being on a scooter and feeling what it's like to be around a car that thinks it automatically has right of way. And if it just does something that's inconvenient for you, can literally crush you to death. Um, you know, I, th- I think once people start adopting these paradigms and start seeing the world slightly differently and having tools and language 
uh, to to explain it um, and talk about the injustices uh, and and unfairness of the current system, um, then you can suddenly have people galvanizing and, and becoming uh, quite effective at resisting you know these this, this reality. It is uh, I, I I generally object to citations of 1984, but I'm going to cite it because uh, one of the forgotten elements of the book is that new speak and control relies on the diminution of language. So the fewer words exist, the vaguer the words are, the greater, the, the harder it is for people to articulate new, new thoughts and share them. And, and th- going back to the beginning, the word mobility has been so bastardized that it's become, it it was for several years impossible to discuss what mobility was without assuming that it is a connected autonomous shared electric vehicle. (laughs) And it really wasn't until the, until our friend Horace uh, championed micro as the prefix for mobility and, and, and allowed mobility to be deconstructed into its, into sub elements, which is where your book begins. And that is really essential because as long as people think that a Tesla is equivalent to an iPhone and therefore that is the one best future of, of, of us getting places, we'll never evolve. Never. I mean, I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, one one surprising thing. Well, it wasn't super surprising for me because I I know you. Um, but maybe people will be a little surprised. Um, and and I, I was a little surprised just because uh, you know usually it's it's easier uh, given what a divisive issue this amazingly has become. It's easier oftentimes to just kind of gloss over it. But um. You kind of have a bit of a, a, a I don't know, full throated, but you 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 defend hydrogen um, here. <laughs> you you really talk about the fact that hydrogen really does have a place um, in in you know the future of of mobility. Um, wh- why why was that an important point to make uh, and to include in this? And and sort of what are sort of the reasons that you have for for not just kind of dismissing it like so many people, so many people do. It's, a, it's an interesting question. I, I think, um, I mean, obviously hydrogen has been hyped for some time, uh, but so are EVs. What hasn't really? I, I th- what hasn't? Uh, you know, I, I think the bicycle hasn't been hyped that much. <laughs> Only e-bikes now a little bit. Um, walking, walking is not hyped at all. It's um, true. The most underrated form of mobility for sure. So it's, it's a few things. Um, I, I, I think the energy density of, of hydrogen uh, gives away. So, so firstly, I, I think hydrogen is underhyped versus EVs, and we're just at a moment where like everybody's so in on EVs. But you know, can the grid really support every vehicle being an electric vehicle? Like, how do we build out that capacity? And even if we build out that capacity, you know, what is what's going to form the peaker plants, and how we're going to manufacture all the steel to hold up? You know, the the mounds of batteries that a Tesla needs so that it's got sufficient range to satisfy the average uh, Tesla consumer. Um, so there, the, the, I think, lots of pathways for hydrogen to become a part of the energy economy. It doesn't need to be the fuel source um, for, for fuel cell vehicles. It could just be um, <clears throat> the way um, in which uh, you, know, you have steel manufacturing happening in a cleaner way. It's a super energy-dense fuel. Um, it fits pretty well into the existing um, uh, energy distribution networks um, that exist. For instance, Saudi Arabia has a lot of the things that you need in order to produce 
uh, what's called green hydrogen, um, <clears throat> wind, um, uh, and 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 water that can be desalinated, um, and it's got all the infrastructure to move that. Um, you can move it in in similar uh, vessels to to what you can uh, move petroleum in. <clears throat> the infrastructure for for the most part uh, exists, and and the means to transport kind of flammable fuels uh, exists as well. So I think there's. I don't think it's like a given, you know, hydrogen is obviously slow out at the starting blocks in the race against EVs and they compete for money and, and financing. But I think relatively little um, uh, government money has actually gone to hydrogen relative to uh, electric vehicles so far. Um, but there are a few car makers that have gone long, uh, especially Toyota, but also Hyundai. Um, so I, I think there, I think there's uh, enough for there to be a really interesting uh, kind of counter argument for why hydrogen has the potential to be a, an important fuel source, um, and so I, I, I started looking into this and got, got really interested in it and, and wanted to flesh out that argument better because I think it hasn't really been made very well up to now. Olaf, what is I mean the Toyota Mirai, right? They were available in California, and there were a handful of hydrogen stations. And I want to get one. If there's anybody so, at Toyota that can set me up with a Mirai, I'd love one. So, so what is the lesson? Uh, I mean, Tesla built out the supercharger network, and for many years it wasn't that deep, and yet it was the only game in town. And to this day, no OEM has verticalized electric charging to enable their EVs to compete with Tesla, at least uh, on the level of infrastructure. Toyota has had many years – to build out additional hydrogen stations and potentially grow a passenger car market around the Mirai, and yet they haven't. Why? I mean, haven't they? Like the the, the they? next, the second generation Mirai is a whole lot cheaper uh, than the first generation. Um, the Mirai is not really targeted at the at the U.S. market. Um, it's much more focused on the Japanese market. <clears throat> They've sold a lot more units uh, of this vehicle. It's it's been quite heavily discounted in in the in the U.S. market. Um, there are some subsidies from the state of California for for hydrogen infrastructure, but I think it's actually quite possible to build out sufficient infrastructure, especially for commercial use cases, but I think also for um, these kinds of use cases because uh, the energy density of hydrogen is is you know like an order of magnitude higher than than batteries, so you can get a lot more range um, with the vehicle. It takes less time to refuel. Uh, so you don't have the problems you have even with supercharging stations, let alone normal charging stations. You need fewer sets of infrastructure. Obviously, the fuel's a little bit hard to transport, and it's it's not trivial. Uh, it's expensive to build out this infrastructure. But you've got all the same problems you've had with electric vehicle infrastructure. That was hard at first, and then you have investment and you know companies seeing a, a good enough reason to make those investments and government seeing enough reason, uh, et cetera. And, and then you have sufficient... Um, density. So I, I see a path forward. I, I don't think it's like, you know, a slam dunk or, or super obvious. Um, uh, but, but I think uh, the Japanese and the Koreans, uh, Hyundai and, and Toyota in particular, um, do see uh, the need for hydrogen within their energy economy, uh, not only for, for transportation. Um, I think they've got a long-term perspective. I think Toyota, if you look at this company, they have uh, I think position themselves extremely well over the years, and when they make con- contrarian uh, decisions, I, I don't think you should just dismiss it out of hand and be like, you know, why, why are they doing that? I, I think, um, I think there might be some wisdom there. 
Um, and I, I just love contrarian perspectives. You know, when everybody says that EV is the future and, and you know, a company like Hyundai um, and Toyota are, are saying, you know, hydrogen, hydrogen and, 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 and fight to some extent, I, I think we should take a look and, and maybe, you know, I, I don't think one needs to win out of the other. And, and I think contrarianism is how you kind of see the truth um, and the fuller perspective over time. So um, I, I think there's something to something to hydrogen. There's some some clown emojis and poop emojis on Twitter that have tried really hard to convince me uh, that that's not the case. But. but but talking of like 1984 and like silencing your your enemies, I mean, you know, we live in a world where like you've almost got less. We kind of have to shout down the opinions we disagree with, and when people are trying really hard to shout down a certain perspective, like hydrogen, you know, I kind of want to defend that guy. You know, like it's, maybe there's something there. You know? I know how you feel. <laughs> Well, what I really love about um, about this this book is that it really does. I think you, what you touched on there. Um, I think with the internet, we've people have gotten really confused about the difference between analysis and advocacy, um, and because a lot of times analysis is seen as just like a tool to further an advocacy position or whatever. And and sort of as you were saying at the beginning of this conversation, I mean, you are in a lot of ways. This book is advocacy. But it and but it's but it's rooted in 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 analysis and that I think like the the balance of like you know insisting that like better things are possible and and there's a way forward um, and that we can get out of this sort of trap that that we've gotten ourselves into while at the same time like like being able to advocate for that while at the same time and and really strengthening that argument by being intellectually honest um, and and inquisitive right rather than just sort of assuming that you know, there's some simple answer that it's just a matter of like ramming it down everyone's throat, which I think is, again, how a lot of people approach, you know, discussions about that. Um, I think it's really, it's, it's really cool. It's what I wish I saw more of in, in this conversation is, is that ability to balance, you know, advocacy for, for, for making things better without, you know, being prescriptive and orthodox, you know, about it. Yeah. And, and I think my, one of my goals was just to make this fun. Um, and, and, you know, that's what dogs and cats are. There's a bunch of jokes kind of mixed in. Uh, Kari thinks she's quite funny, although I don't know if everybody will find that so funny. Um, and, and I think the, the other goal is just to give people tools uh, and um, frameworks. I mean, it's called mobility disruption framework. And it says at the end, you know, the goal of this is to start a conversation rather than say, you know, how the conversation should play out. I think we're much better as a society when we're armed with the tools to have a conversation about what we care about and what our values are. And different people have different values and different goals. But as long as we have a common language to talk about things and to point to the same reality and, and have the same framework, um, and reference points, I think we're in a better in better shape uh, to get to a better place. So that's kind of the goal here. Um, I hope that people firstly read it and and enjoy it and and find it fun. Um, I think if you reread it, you'll find new things as you kind of go along. Um, and hopefully this will spark lots of conversations that I think can be fruitful over time. Great. Well, on that note, we're gonna we will share. Why, why do you the, hate autonomous vehicles? <laughs> well, that's in chapter two. At the that's end of another, chapter two, that's another conversation. Brent, we'll have to have Olaf back. Where we, I'm gonna pull an Alex and say we are totally out of time here. Yeah. Um, and um, you can answer that question 
via Twitter in the thread that we'll start once this episode goes live and we also share a link to to the book. So um, on that note, I want to say thanks to Olaf and to our audience for listening to another episode of the Atomicast. Cast.